Welcome to the next best podcast with your hosts, Chris Cashman. 24 years old, a former sheet metal worker, Mr. America, and twice Mr. Universe. And Chris Daniels. Time Magazine even named him Person of the Century. Now, from the CNC Podcast Factory, here's the next best podcast. Chris, here we are again in the podcast factory, CNC podcast factory, as it is known to the large fan base. Yes, except uh, in this CNC factory, we're not going to make you sweat. Hey. Hey. I like what you did there. Yeah. Look at us. Back in the studio and back with a special guest in the studio. Is this like our new thing? This is like we're getting all the PR agencies saying, hey, we've got a celebrity that you guys are going to want to have on the podcast. Well, yeah, when we're talking hockey, I mean, this is the place to be, right? <laughs> That's right. This yeah, is I mean, this is, uh, it, when you notice we're talking about NHL, Seattle, their hashtag is return to Seattle, return That's right. to hockey. Which is an important segue into yes. today's guest because we have a guy with us who has written a very cool book and a piece of history that is important for us to share, but also a first-time author. Kevin Tyson is with us, and we've got his book right in front of us, When It Mattered Most. And this is the, as you say, what, the forgotten history of the first champions. Yeah, the first American team to win the Stanley Cup, the Metropolitans in 1917. And uh, I think that it, that it's becoming well-known, right? I think we spent the last two years kind of celebrating this. And uh, to me, it was forgotten, certainly. Uh, Paul Kim, who, who started this, came into our offices at the Sports Commission and asked us to help celebrate, and I didn't know anything about it at the time. And so it's been a lot of fun for me to research it and sort of hopefully bring it back to life. That's what's cool about this, Chris, is, is you know, Kevin, you're not some historian. You're not a longtime, you know, hockey enthusiast that this has been your whole life, and so you just had to put it down onto paper. Uh, you admitted you're, you're a baseball player. Yeah, I was a baseball player at the University of Washington in the Angels minor league system and then uh, a coach at the UW for five years. And, uh, and yeah, I never played hockey. Uh, I like it. I enjoy watching it, but don't know a lot about it. Um, but really, you know, I kind of saw this through the perspective of the athletes, right? You think you win a championship, you deserve to have people know about it and know your story. And these guys were certainly very, very famous in Seattle, probably until the late 60s, you know, and then it sort of just fades to, to history. And so... Um, I really, you know, enjoyed from a competitive standpoint getting to know these guys, and and hopefully that comes across to people reading the book. Yeah, March we just celebrated 102 years since Seattle won the Stanley Cup. Yes, Seattle is on the Stanley Cup. I don't think a lot of people that even follow hockey right. realize this history, and that's what's so good about putting a pen to paper or or typewriter or computer uh, to, to have this story finally told. I mean, how did you get into it? How long ago? You were telling me up in the elevator that this is just kind of a happy coincidence that this book gets released now. Yeah, I mean, really. So we, uh, we did the celebration in March of 2017, and uh, I thought it was pretty neat that Seattle won the first uh, American Stanley Cup, and I pitched a few authors that I knew to write the story, and, and nobody even responded. Uh, and, and I remember kind of talking to my wife about it, that I was kind of disappointed that, that no one had and, yeah. and was hopeful that someone would write it and then just got busy with life. Uh, I still coach a baseball team in the summers, and, you know, pretty soon it's December, and we get word that the cup can come for a day, and the cup came out, and I spent the day uh, taking it around, doing came here, uh, just doing a lot of media stuff and yeah, a lot I remember of fan seeing Chris got a photo with it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the real deal. That's yeah. the real deal. Stanley Cup. And it just brought it back to the top of mind. And, and you know, sort of frustration was like, this story needs to be out there. I really didn't know anything right at that point. I didn't know 
if these guys were mercenaries that came for a year or two, I knew that a lot of them had played in the 1914 Stanley Cup uh, Toronto team. Uh, I didn't know if it was even a story, really. Uh, and kind of it took me probably six weeks to two months to kind of get the courage to actually go and start researching. And the second that I researched, I was hooked. Uh, you know, the very first day I went into the Seattle Central Library and put the old PI uh, microfilms in, and I'm cool. scrolling through mm. looking for the Stanley Cup final. And the two days before the final starts, there's a headline that's about six inches uh, big on the front page that says Czar abdicates. And I am a history buff fan, mm. you know, like obviously I don't write or do anything like that previously, but uh, I thought it was incredible that the Czar of Russia abdicated two days before the Stanley Cup final started. Uh, and then Googled to find out when we declared war on, on Germany, and it was six days after the final ended. Uh, and at that point, I just it felt like it, was, it had to be told. Uh, and then as I read the game recaps, they're better. I mean, it, it mm. literally every rock that I turned over researching this, there was multiple diamonds underneath it. So Yeah, because the, the book is about, yes, the, the history going on at the time when uh, on, a, on a global scale mm-hmm. in addition to here in Seattle. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the wars raging in Europe, right. you know, and uh, America is a completely different place than it is today, right? We don't intervene in, in foreign wars. The Mexican Revolution is also raging, uh, and President Wilson is trying everything he can to keep us out of both wars, and Germany's trying to do everything they can to pull us in. Uh, and it, it was really an interesting time in America to see us sort of uh, dip our toe in the international waters, so to speak, and, um, you know, and... and we did it. We went over. We helped turn the tide, and then we pulled back for another, you know, ten or fifteen years. And World War II starts. Uh, and, and Seattle, it's a uh, incredible time. I mean, it's a time very similar to today. The population's booming. So it's two hundred and twenty thousand people in nineteen ten, and three hundred and thirty thousand people in nineteen fifteen. Mm-hmm. And you have Boeing. The first Boeing flight takes place in in January of that year. Uh, UPS is really starting to flourish, and, and you can see that it's a viable business. Nordstrom is taking off. Hmm. Uh, and then one thing that I didn't know, and I think a lot of people don't know, so the Pantages Theater chain, is it all started out of Seattle. And so Alexander Pantages is one of the biggest Metropolitan fans. He sits at Center Ice. He puts up the cash for a lot of the, uh, the sort of um, rewards and things like that for the players. And uh, you know, he creates this vaudeville circuit that, that really encompasses the entire western half of the U.S., but it, it all centers in Seattle. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't know that. And there's a Pantages Theater that's still very famous in Hollywood. And this all sounds like a, a bit of a movie, yeah. part, right? I mean, like, I think I would have Nicolas Cage play you. <laughs> because you were at the library searching through microfiche and things like that, right? But yeah. this is amazing. So at what point did this become, uh, you said you were hooked right away, but it, did at any point did it become overwhelming? I mean, to, to suddenly put this into paper and into book form, you have to play the role of the expert. Yeah. Uh, August of last year, it certainly became overwhelming. So uh, like I said, I, I still coach a baseball team. I worked at the sports commission. I was trying to write, and I have three kids that are now 13, 11, and 9. Uh, and trying to do all four of those things simultaneously was not working. And uh, I decided to leave the sports commission last June to write. And you know they were very supportive of me. And, and uh, I wrote the end of the book first. So I wrote the, the Stanley Cup final games, and they were easy for me to write from just a competitive standpoint. You know, I experienced uh, certainly not anything on that level, but similar things uh, as an athlete and as a coach. And so it was easy for me to write what was happening there. And then I went back and wrote chapter one. And 
Uh, nobody told me how difficult it was to develop characters, you know, and I think that I, I probably wrote chapter one at least 25 times. Mm. The first 24 are so bad that you couldn't read them. <laughs> uh, my wife read the first one and handed it back to me after a paragraph and a half and said, this is terrible. Redo oh this. Oh, wow. You know, and, and like I said, I'd already quit my job at that point. And, um, you know, and, and luckily, I, I think just I was very lucky that I was an athlete, right? I, I'd been trained to to not give up and to you know, see obstacles as just, you know, something that needs to be overcome. And, and I just kind of kept plowing through it. And uh, it took me six weeks to write chapter one and then six re- weeks to write the rest of the book. So once I broke through it, it flew from there. And there's a, you know, a, a finally, I was telling you that there's this plaque in downtown that I, I think people drive by now and they don't mm-hmm. even realize, but for years didn't realize that this is where the team played. What mm-hmm. is it the do we still call it the IBM building mm-hmm. yeah. down, downtown? Yeah. That's that's where the arena was. Yeah. Uh, so the plaque is from the celebration we did in 1917, and we reached out to the building owners, and I don't think they knew that it had happened. Wow. Uh, we tried to get them to put the plaque up to coincide with the cup coming, and they just couldn't get it done in time. Uh, so it went up in you know February or March of 2018, uh, and it was pretty neat to, to see it up there and to – watch people walk by now and realize that this happened there. Uh, but yeah, the arena was one of the first artificial ice arenas in the country. It was sort of the Taj Mahal. This is a classic Seattle story. <laughs> Taj Mahal, when it's built in, in uh, 1916 and, you know, three years later, it's obsolete because it's too small. Right. Wow. And it's, it sat 2,500 people and they would pack another thousand in for uh, big games with standing room only. And in the uh, 1917 final, there are kids up on the roof looking through the transoms and the skylights and things like that to watch wow. the game. Uh, and then the Fairmont is built in 1922 or 23, something like that. And they need a structure for their parking garage. And so uh, they kick the Metropolitans out of their lease and oh, the turn irony. the irony into a parking garage. <laughs> a parking garage. Yeah. The irony. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. So even way back then, parking overtaking uh, much of Seattle. Yeah. This is an amazing book. And to look at even the cover, uh, you're reminded of a number of things, not only the Seattle Metropolitans, uh, but the color scheme, yeah. the sweater, the jersey. I don't know. It was kind of a Christmas color scheme mm-hmm. going on. And it, as the you know, battle over what are we going to call this team? What's the mm-hmm. name? And some people fighting for things like the Metropolitan. Some people quick to say that already exists in a version of hockey, so we mm-hmm. can't do that. Some people felt like kind of with the Sonics debate, like, no, if they come back, it should be the Metropolitans. We should honor it. And then people on the other side saying, no, it has nothing to do. This is a hundred year history. It, mm-hmm. It's a completely different entity. Where do you stand? I mean, as a guy who has had to sit and study and research, do you feel like it would honor the team? I mean, I think it's all but assumed it's not happening. Yeah, they basically right. said, this is a not happening. Yeah. They're not going to be the Metropolitans. But where do you stand on all that? Well, on the Sonics, it has to be the Sonics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no debate Agreed. about that. And they are coming back, and I will be as excited as everyone else in this yeah. town. Uh, on the Metropolitans, to me, it didn't matter. You know, I think that uh, it, it just it was 100 years ago. It wasn't necessarily representative of uh, our community then, right? It's, it's the Metropolitan Building Tract is that swath of land that the university owns, and the Metropolitan Building Company built the, the structure, and so that's why they named them the Metropolitans. Really? I didn't even uh, know that. It's in the book. Wow. Yeah, you'll learn some things. <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, it just really, you know, I'm indifferent to the name. Uh, I do think that they should hang the banners. You know, I I think the banners are about communities and about people. And, uh, you know, like 
every time I walk in Husky Ballpark and I see the you know, 1997, 1998 Pac-10 championship, it makes right. me smile. And, you know, it makes me happy to show my kids that I was a part of that. And there are still, you know, grandkids in mm-hmm. the region and great grandkids. And they deserve to walk in, in this arena and see uh, those banners hanging. You know, and our community deserves it, too. Right. It mm-hmm. was uh, uh, we were part of something pretty special. You know, and for me, I hope that they put the statues of the three Hall of Famers out front, too. Right? I mean, there's three people from that team in the Hall of Fame. Hmm. And every single one of these guys spent their entire career in Seattle. Right. So they were uh, it was one thing that was that was really neat about this team. So Pete Muldoon's the head coach and he's this really charismatic, inspirational, uh, visionary in hockey. And if you look at the rosters of those teams back then, everybody's on one year contracts and they just they turn over every year in the Metropolitan State intact for almost their entire duration. So Wow. Um, and Muldoon should have a statue. I mean, this guy when he dies he has a heart attack uh, in the late thirties and uh, it, the hockey community sort of crumbles when he dies. And, and uh, in the Seattle Times, the header above where it says sports says Pete Muldoon dies, right? And in the PI, it's a massive story, front page, above the fold, you know, and it's talked about for a full week. And uh, he's revered well after he dies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Royal Brome is the official scorer for the Metropolitans. He's 22 right. years old uh, and has a very close relationship with Muldoon. And you know, there's one point in some of the research I did where he's comparing Muldoon to the guy that, that founded the New York Yankees. Uh, and uh, I can't remember who the other person was. Let's say, like, Notre Dame's head coach in football. I mean, he's, he's basically saying that Pete Muldoon is one of the, you know, two or three most influential people in the country when it comes to sports. You know, and, and he's lost, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's crazy that he's lost. So, so where can we find this book, buy this book? So it's on Amazon now. Right. Uh, the book comes out next Tuesday. Uh, so it'll be in bookstores. It'll it'll be everywhere. This is a podcast, so they might be listening to this in 2030. Perfect. So yeah. it's, it's out now. It's out. <laughs> yeah. Just go Tuesday, find it. April 2nd, I think, then is what the yes. date would be. Yes. yes. When it mattered most, the forgotten story of America's first Stanley Cup champions and the war to end all wars. That's going to be a page turner, man. I love okay. the history of Seattle in there. So many things like Royal, people know of the streets. Mm-hmm. They probably don't even know it's named after a guy and, and what it meant and what these yeah. things symbolize. So thanks for doing this. What yeah. a cool thing. Yeah, it was It was really one of the honors of my life to be able to do it. You know, I just, uh, again, seeing it through the perspective of the athletes, it, just, it makes me feel good that people are going to know their stories, hopefully. You know, hopefully it's yeah. written well enough to where people are going to want to read it and tell their friends about it and... Uh, and, and know these guys. You know, they were really special, incredible people. And I think part of the reason they're lost to the history, too, is they were so humble, right? They were just guys that loved to compete, mm-hmm. and it wasn't about them. It wasn't about their legacy or things like that. And as they die, you know, there's, there's no one talking about it anymore. Kevin Tyson, first-time author, but now that you have made an appearance on the Next Best Podcast, <laughs> can we rebrand as noted author Kevin Tyson? Yeah. With us here. There you go. <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram. At next best part. That's the worst name I ever heard. This is the exclusive ending of the next best podcast.